You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. So tonight, we're going to start a series in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, You remember we left off in 1 Samuel with the death of Saul and his sons, specifically Jonathan. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are essentially the life of David. 1 Samuel is sort of the life of Saul and David. And and as we move into 2 Samuel, it's all about David. And really, it's kind of the, the tale of two aspects of David's life here in 2 Samuel. The first half of the book is is really all about David's victories and the things that David did well. And, and the last part of the book is is about David's defeat and the things that he really did poorly. And I think it's a, a microcosm of our, our lives in that we are conflicted people. On the one hand, David was a man after God's own heart. And even tonight, we're going to see how that is demonstrated and just the incredible characteristics that David possessed. But on the other hand, David was an adulterer and a murderer and a terrible father. And so he's a conflicted guy. And I think we can take uh, a lot of comfort in that because we're conflicted people. And on one hand, we, we do things well. And on the other hand, we make a lot of mistakes but as we look at 2 Samuel, ultimately my goal is that we get to Jesus and that we see Jesus because David, more than a representative of you and I, David is a representative of Jesus. And, and David was not only of the line and the lineage of Jesus, the, the Bible says that, that Jesus was the son of David, he, he came through that line, the line of Judah, but Jesus is also typified uh, in the life of David. And, and Jesus even pointed to David as being a type of himself. And so we're going we're gonna to see that clearly as we study 2 Samuel. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 1. And I want you guys to think about, as we read this chapter tonight, I want you to think about how you would handle yourself if you were given news that your greatest enemy was dead, that the, the, the greatest difficulty in your life was no longer an issue anymore. That this person who had been giving you all kinds of grief and had been such a burden and a trial to you, a person who had put you through so much anguish and hardship, a person who had mistreated you and abused you and taken so much from you, how you would respond if you found out that something terrible had happened to them or that they were dead or that somehow vengeance was brought to them, how you would respond. And then I want you to put yourself in David's shoes as we see him receive the news that Saul is dead. You would think this would be a time of rejoicing. If you've been with us in our study of 1 Samuel, you know that Saul had been an absolute terror to David. Every time Saul had the opportunity. He was trying to kill David. He was throwing spears at him. He was chasing him all over the wilderness. David was hiding from him. Saul had taken his family, his wealth. Saul had taken David's best years from him. From the time that David was probably 20 years old until he was 30 years old. Some people would say those are your best years, the prime of your life. Those years were stolen from David by Saul as David was running around trying to spare his life. And now Saul's dead and you would think, oh man, this is awesome. But look at how David responds. I think this 
shows us a lot about David. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Now, you remember back in chapter 30 that David had basically made a home for himself in Ziklag, which is not part of Israel. It was a Gentile area. And he had lived there so long that he began to think like a Gentile. And he actually was willing to go to war against his own countrymen, against Israel. But the Philistines decided that that would not be a good idea, that David maybe had something up his sleeve, and they sent David and his mighty men back to Ziklag. They didn't want to take the chance that he might be setting them up for an ambush. Well, you remember when they got back to Ziklag, that they found out that their city had been destroyed, their women had been abducted, and so they went after them, and they were able to subdue and bring their women back, and they were able to get all their possessions and more. But here they are back in Ziklag. Now they're probably rebuilding their, their homes and, and their city, and they're in the midst of that. And David receives this news from a young man who's got his clothes torn and dust on his head, which is a sign of mourning. He came to David, and he prostrates himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And so David hasn't received news as to how the war and how the battle was going. And the man answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know this? How, how, how can you be certain of this? Because David is not in a, in a mood to rejoice. David is not wanting to revel in this. He, he wants proof of it, though. And the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, this young man is, is beginning to, I believe fabricate a story here. And he says to him, I just happened by chance to be there on Mount Gilboa. I don't think it was by chance at all because this young man is an Amalekite. The Amalekites were known for going in after battles and stripping the the slain of their armor and their valuables and their weapons. And so I don't think he's there by accident at all, but he's fabricating this story to David because he's trying to impress David. He's in his mind believing that he's going to be the one that's going to deliver the news that Saul is dead and David's going to be so stoked. And then when he finds out that this man is the one that delivered the death blow, he's going to have a place in David's kingdom. He's going to be rewarded handily. Now, when he looked Behind him, the, the young man says, the, he, he says, I, I was on the mountain just by chance, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And so he is telling the truth about some things because he was able to mention that Saul had his spear. And we know that Saul never went anywhere without his spear. I mean, they were like inseparable. Every time you turn around, he's chucking his spear at somebody. So this guy did have some, some proof that he was there, but I think he's fabricating much of this story, and I'll tell you why. So he says he's leaning on his spear. 
The chariots and horsemen are following hard after him. So they're, they're approaching quickly. And when Saul looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me. For anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, this young man tells David that he delivered the death blow. And it's possible that that's true. But if you go back to chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, in verse 4, it says that Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. And so it's pretty clear from the scriptures that Saul was dead before this Amalekite even got to him. He fell on his sword, that the armor bearer waited till Saul died, and then he killed himself. Now it's possible that the armor bearer was deceived and he thought he was dead and he really wasn't. He killed himself. Saul was still alive, gasping for breath. The the last moments of his life, here comes this Amalekite and, and Saul says, finish me off, and he finishes him off. It's possible, but I don't think that's what happened at all. I think this Amalekite got to Saul, saw that he was dead, concocted a story in his mind of how he could garner position for himself, stole Saul's bracelet and his crown, and brought it to David as proof that he killed him. And so, yeah, some of this is true. He was there, but I think Saul was already dead when he got to him. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes... And tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Now, this would not be the reaction that I would expect. I would think that when David heard that Saul was dead, he wouldn't tear his clothes in a sign of mourning and repentance. He, he would throw a party, a celebration. I mean, this is amazing. Finally, I'm able to do what God's called me to do. To be the king, I'm able to, to sit on the throne that I should be rightly possessing. I'm not going to have to be running for my life. But David mourns over the death of Saul and his friend Jonathan. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And notice it's not just David, but it's also David's men. And that's what good leadership does is that people follow in your footsteps. And David had bred into his men not to be bitter towards Saul, but to have a heart for Saul. And your bitterness and your animosity will be passed on to others, to your children, to people in your family, to your friends, to your co-workers. It's very contagious, bitterness is. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, is how you handle bitterness how you deal with difficult people in your life, those people that have hurt you and harmed you and wounded you, and how you react and respond when you find out that terrible things have happened to them. It tells you a lot about your heart and whether or not you, you are truly bitter. And the book of Hebrews talks about not allowing a root of bitterness to take hold in your heart. And all of us have reason to be bitter, but I don't think any of us have more reason than David had to be bitter towards Saul. 
I don't think there's any of us in this room tonight who have someone in our life who has hurt us and harmed us more than Saul had David. If anybody had reason to hate somebody and to justify it, David had reason to hate Saul. Who would blame him? Who would say, oh, get over it, David? Who would say to him, you shouldn't be rejoicing in this? No one. If you or I were with him, we'd be partying right alongside him. We'd be saying, God's will is finally accomplished. Our prayers have been answered. But David always knew in his heart that Saul was God's anointed. And until God delivered David, he was never going to harm Saul. He was never going to try to circumvent the plan of God. He was never going to try to remove Saul, even though he was the obstacle by which David would be able to accomplish what he knew God was calling him to do. David was not going to try to remove that difficulty from his life. And isn't it interesting that as Christians, we always assume that that difficulty, that struggle, that hardship, that God doesn't want that there. And most of the time, that couldn't be further from the truth. It's exactly what God wants in our life. And we, we pray, God, move that. It must not be your will for that to be there. And God says, no, it is my will. That's perfectly in my plan for you. It's just like when a, a, a mother and a father find out that their child has Down syndrome or some kind of a debilitating disease. And the doctor assumes, you don't want this child, you abort this child. It, it's going to be retarded or it's going to have some kind of a, a, a really difficult physical issue. It, and people just assume that there's no reason to live. God must not even want that child. That there, there must have been a mistake. And that's a wrong assumption because that's the very thing that God had for that person and for those parents. And so often we're trying to circumvent difficulties, assuming that God must not want there to be any hardship in my life. And David refused to do that. And David also refused to allow a root of bitterness to spring up in his heart towards Saul. So much so that even when he found out he was dead, he refused to rejoice in it. In fact, he went so far as to mourn and to fast. And that blows me away because I think about myself and I think I put myself in David's shoes and I don't think that I would be doing that. I don't think I would be doing that at all. David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And so this plan from this young man now begins to backfire. What he thought was going to bring him position in David's kingdom, in fact, brought death to him. What he thought was going to be a real benefit resulted in just the opposite. David didn't really have all the details that we have listed for us in 1 Samuel 31 about how it actually happened. And so I don't think David knew that this young man was lying to him. He just took him at his word. But it was the, the heart behind this young man. The fact that this young man would be rejoicing in the death of Saul, David brought judgment upon him for that. And in verses 17 to 27, David writes a poem it's a lament over the death of Saul and Jonathan. It, it's a lament. It's a poem that would have been published widely at that time. It, it talks about the book of Jasher. And, and that would have been a, a widely 
read and publicized book at that time, not inspired by God, but a book that would have been a bestseller, if you will. It would have been one that everyone would have known about. And in this poem that David pins here, made it into that book. It was not only something personal for David, it was also a, a public lament for the entire nation. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher, the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. And notice the wording that David uses. He calls Saul mighty. And you can tell a lot about your heart in, in how you talk about people. What an opportunity for David to just trash Saul, right? What an opportunity for David to pin all that he felt about Saul. He calls him mighty. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. David says, I don't want our enemies to find out about this. I don't want to give our enemies any reason to rejoice over the death of Saul. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. And Gilboa was where Saul and Jonathan died. And, and so David is almost cursing this land. The, the blood of Saul and Jonathan was spilled on the mountain. And so David says, let there be no rain fall upon the land because their blood was spilled there. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. And the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I was distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. And so this was not only a lament for Saul, but for Jonathan as well. And, and again, we've talked about this in our study in 1 Samuel. I think as men especially, we kind of freak out when we read that David's love for Jonathan surpassed that of his love for women. And I think immediately as men, our minds go to to sexual things, and, and that's not at all what he's talking about here. This is not sexual. This is not homosexual. This was a friendship, a deep friendship, a kindredness of spirit that was existing between Jonathan and David. You remember, they battled together side by side, many battles. And if you've ever met men who, who fought in war together, there's, there's a camaraderie that exists with those guys that you just can't really duplicate Guys who have been in the trenches together. Or if you've been through a real difficult situation with someone, there's, there's a knitting of your hearts. And that's what David is talking about that he had with Jonathan. And you have to remember in that culture, men were not friends with their wives. That just was not something that existed in that culture. They married women to procreate, to pleasure themselves, to cook food for them, to entertain them. Women were a, a product in a lot of ways. It was just part of their culture. They were not respected. They were not befriended. And so men did not express friendship to their wives. They had friendships with men, and that's with other men. And thankfully, through Christ, 
uh, women have been liberated from a lot of that kind of tyranny and bondage in chauvinistic kinds of uh, mindsets. But that's what's being described here with David is that he didn't have that kind of friendship with with women. You remember his first wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, she betrayed him. He didn't have that kind of a relationship with women, but he had that with Jonathan and his heart broke when he learned of his death. You guys, I didn't have a long message planned for you tonight because I want to leave you with, with a very simple thought of how would you respond if you found out that the person who had caused you the greatest hurt, the greatest amount of hardship, who had harmed you the most, how would you respond if you found out that something very terrible had happened to them or that they were dead, that they were no longer an issue for you? (coughs) How do you feel about people who have hurt you? Have you allowed a root of bitterness to take hold in your heart? And if you have, you need to repent. You need to allow Jesus to flood you with his love and his grace. Because as I said, more than looking to David as an example to you and I tonight, I want David to point us to Christ. Because as much as I want you to see the application in this for you and how David's life applies to you and to me tonight, I want it to point us to Jesus. Because even greater than David was Jesus, who was crucified innocently. As much as David was treated horribly by Saul in ways that he did not deserve, David was still at his heart a sinner. At his very core, he was evil and wicked. And in reality, deserved the treatment that he received from Saul because he is a sinner and his heart is wicked and desperately evil. But Jesus, on the other hand, was perfect. His thoughts were perfect. His motives were perfect. He never said anything to anyone that was hurtful or harmful or sinful. He never had a sinful thought about anyone. He never hurt anyone. And yet Jesus was arrested as an innocent man. He was beaten mercilessly. He was crucified, having never committed one sin, never done anything wrong, and yet he's being crucified as a criminal. And then God the Father pours out his holy wrath upon Jesus. All of the wrath, all of the judgment that you and I deserve. We talk about fairness, right? If you have kids, you hear it all the time. That's not fair. And we want justice. And we believe in having a strong justice system. And it really ticks us off when justice isn't handed out or when injustice happens, when someone is punished wrongfully or when you watch these specials on like the Discovery Channel, about someone who spent 20 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. I mean, that just, ooh, you know, that just gets at you, right? You just think, man, I hope that guy sues the pants off that state. I hope he's rich beyond his wildest dreams for the rest of his life because that kind of injustice really just gets to the core of who we are. And here's the thing about Jesus is the holy, righteous wrath of God was poured out upon him and he'd never done anything wrong. And so again, if anybody ought to have been a little bit bitter, it was Jesus. I mean, if Jesus had some sarcastic kind of cutting remarks for the people that were walking by, nobody would have blamed him. You know, if he would have thrown out a couple expletives, I mean, hey, 
Give the guy some grace, right? I mean, who knows what you and I would have said if we're hanging on a cross for the sins of the world, the the righteous wrath of God is being poured out upon us, the Trinity, for the first time, that communion, that fellowship has been broken. We can't even fathom what that was like as Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That might put me in a bad mood. And what does Jesus do? Well, first of all, the idiot on the cross next to him who minutes before was mocking Jesus. If you look at the parallel accounts, both thieves were mocking Jesus. Then one got the clue that Jesus was pretty cool and that this wasn't just a normal criminal that he was being crucified next to. This was somebody special. This was somebody completely different and unique. This was the Messiah. This was the Son of God. He figured that out. But moments before, he was mocking Jesus. Now he says, hey, um, do you think I could join you in paradise? Do you think you could bring me along? If it's me, I'm saying, hey, dude, five minutes ago, you're mocking me. Why don't you go to hell? That's what I'd say to him. But what does Jesus say to him? Surely I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. You got people walking by and, and you got to remember when you think about the cross, don't think about Jesus being crucified out in the middle of nowhere. I think we have that in our mind that, you know, it's out in the desert and there's nothing but scorpions and rattlesnakes. No, it's right in the middle of town. And also don't think of the cross being like 20 feet in the air. Think of the cross as, as being almost eye level so that you would be able to, to reach up and touch Jesus. And people are walking by and they're mocking him and they're spitting on him and they're making fun of him. And they're making fun of the fact that the sign above him, the only thing that they could say against him is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They would put the crime of the crucified individual above their head. Jesus' crime king of the Jews. And they're mocking him for that. Yeah, you're a king. Look at you. What would you say? What kind of stuff would be coming out of your mouth? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. David is pointing us to one greater than himself. David is pointing us to Jesus, the one who had reason to be bitter, the one who had reason to harbor hatred and animosity in his heart. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And that's the kind of love that you and I need to have flood our soul tonight. And if you're holding things against people tonight, if you have bitterness in your heart, man, when you come before the table tonight, you got to let that go. you got to come before the cross and you got to give it up. Because Jesus, when he comes into your life, he doesn't want that kind of bitterness to be there. His love is washing that out of you. He wants to wipe it clean. He wants to take that root of bitterness and he wants to root it out of you because that root of bitterness is choking out the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. And David tonight is a great example for you and I, a great characteristic of forgiveness, of love, of not rejoicing when those who have harmed you have horrible things happen to them. And I know all of us have reason to be bitter for, for things that have happened to us. And you've got to let that go. You've got to allow God to heal your heart. You've got to go to the cross and let the love of God flood your heart in such a way that you're able to forgive others the way that Jesus has forgiven you. In fact, Jesus said, if you don't forgive men the things that they've done against you, I can't forgive you. See, that kind of bitterness and that kind of unforgiveness can't coexist with the love of God is what Jesus is saying. And so if you truly know Jesus, and if you have truly been crucified with Christ, then he is going to be rooting that bitterness out of you. It will just be a natural byproduct of his love 
in your life. And so deal with the Lord on that tonight. Come before the table and let God cleanse you and heal you and take away that bitterness. The worship band's going to come up. We're going to have a time of worship and communion. Just come forward and receive it on your own as a family. And let the Lord deal with your heart tonight. Think about Jesus and his forgiveness. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to come before the table, Lord, and to receive of your love and of your grace. God, to be reminded of all that you've done for us. God, to to specifically think of the cross, to remember your death and your burial and the resurrection, Lord. And I pray that, God, you would free us from the bondage of bitterness tonight, Lord. God, maybe... We just need to raise our hands up to you, Lord, and, and have you take it. God, just in a, in a symbol of giving it to you. Lord, we offer our hearts to you, God. Take our hearts. God, melt them. Extract the bitterness, the animosity, the anger out. Form our heart. God, give us a new heart, a heart that is like yours, Jesus. Do that work in us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, you may do so at our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Once again, thank you for listening, and God bless.